I was raised by my grandparents for the majority of my childhood, Nanny and Pawpaw. That's what everybody called them. And Pawpaw had a corner bookshelf in our living room growing up. And on that bookshelf was trophy after trophy of different competitions that he had won throughout the years. See, Pawpaw was an expert trap shooter. And so inevitably, we would hear these stories of great adventure about how he had won said trophy. You know, the biggest trophy caught your eye as soon as you walked into the living room. It was about three feet tall. There were columns surrounding the trophy. It was colorful. And at the top of that trophy was a golden figurine of a man carrying a shotgun. And at the bottom of that trophy was a plaque that read his name and underneath the name of the competition that he had just won. I remember we'd have friends come over and they would see the trophy and inevitably they would ask a question. And so we would have to hear again those same stories of adventure and again hear the advice on how to be a better shooter. Now look, I've never seen Pawpaw fire a shotgun, but there's no doubt in my mind that he knows what to do with the 12 gauge. Why? Because the trophy is there to prove it. And I've heard the stories, believe me, I've heard the stories, right? You remember what it was like to win your first trophy? Not just a participation award, but a, a trophy that you earned and you took home and you set it on your dresser or on your shelf. Remember how proud you were? You know, someone that goes back for a homecoming or high school reunion, they don't walk by the display of trophies and, and see one that they helped earn and not give it second thought. No, they walk by those trophies and they remember the ups and downs of a sports season. They remember the blood and the sweat and the tears that it took to earn the win, to get the championship. They remember what it was like to play alongside their friends who became brothers and sisters along the way. And perhaps they remember the sacrifice and all the hours that they put in to be better. See, these trophies are not metal and plastic and wood that are joined together to set on a shelf and collect dust. No, they're much more than that. They're a representation of stories, of relationships, and of those people that have put in the work to earn them. Friends, I want you to know this morning that God has a bookshelf in his living room. And on the bookshelf in his living room sets trophy after trophy after trophy. And if you look a little closer, you're going to see a trophy that is surrounded in columns. And if you, if you peek in just a little more, you're going to see that at the top of that trophy, there's a golden figurine. And guess what? It looks like FBG. And at the bottom of that trophy, it reads, First Baptist Georgetown, best family ever. This is good news. And look, it's not about us. We are simply the recipients of his grace and of his love, and God demonstrates his love and his grace through the church. And I hope that we can know that this morning, that God demonstrates his great love and his incredible riches of his grace and mercy through the church. So my hope for us this morning is that we would see God for who he is and what he's done so that we could have a better grasp of who we're called to be as a church family. So we're going to be in the second chapter of Ephesians. You can go ahead and turn there. 
The book of Ephesians was written to a people that needed to be reminded of who God is. They needed to be reminded of who they were called to be in Christ. And for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul writes to encourage them and to explain to them that Jesus Christ is supreme over all things. And past that, that they have incredible spiritual blessings because of what Jesus has done. You see, the Ephesian believers were surrounded by all types of evil, by all types of immorality, and by all types of idol worship. And at times, they were discouraged. And at times, they were intimidated. And Paul wanted them to see that God is great and that they have access to God, and so they have no need to be intimidated. God has set them apart to be his people, and as his people, they are his trophy. So with that in mind, let's read chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive together with Christ, even when we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace, or by grace you have been saved. Paul immediately begins a contrast between that which is dead and he who brings life. And in the three verses before, you see that we were all dead in our transgressions. And, and past that, we are all by nature children of wrath. See, death is the result of sin. And sin is the act of disobeying and dishonoring the one true, almighty, holy God. And sin is deserving of wrath and death. Death is simply the inability to respond. If you do not know Christ, you are spiritually dead. This is your reality. And in spiritual death, you are not able to. You don't have the ability. You cannot respond to who God is and anything related to him because there is spiritual death. You're a child of wrath outside of Christ. And God's wrath is devastating. And that wrath comes from the sin that we have committed against a holy God. Sin is ugly. You know that. You've, you've been in the grocery store, right? You've been in HEB, walking down the aisles, getting what you need to take home. And you've walked past the mom that has the son in the cart that is throwing a fit, right? He's clenching his fist, he's stomping his feet, he's whining, he might be yelling or speaking back against the mom. If I walk by that person, I'm thinking, ooh, somebody's about to get a spanking, right? Because that's what it's time for. That child's disobedience is deserving of punishment. And if that child deserves to be punished by a parent who's not that great, how much more severe should our punishment be when we dishonor a God that is holy, when we dishonor a God that is good and set apart and almighty, who's done everything necessary to make us his children? His wrath is devastating, but he acts in justice. If you look in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, you'll see a story. King Saul has been commanded to wipe out the Amalekites. Earlier in the history of God's people, the Amalekites had come against them and attacked them when they were vulnerable. 
And in turn, God vows to display his wrath over them. And the time has come, and God commands King Saul to wipe them out, to utterly destroy them, to completely devour them. And so King Saul begins to wage war against the Amalekites, and he has victory. But King Saul did not do all that, that God had commanded him to do. King Saul kept some of the livestock for himself and for his people, some of the fatted calves, some of the donkeys, some of the sheep. King Saul spared the life of King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, hoping to use King Agag as a type of trophy for what he's done. And then more than that, King Saul set up a monument for himself. You see the problem? Glory was meant to go to God. And so God calls to Samuel. Samuel's a, a priest and prophet at this time. And, and Samuel gets word, and he begins to make his way to King Saul in the camp. Samuel's an old man at this time. And as he gets closer to the camp, it becomes immediately clear that the people have sinned. He can hear the bleeding of sheep in his ear, and he confronts King Saul. And he tells him, King Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord is rejecting you. And if you continue to read in First and Second Samuel, you'll see that King Saul meets his death by an Amalekite. More than that, King Agag is there. King Agag is smiling. He's even laughing a little bit, thinking that his life has been spared. But Samuel calls for a sword, and he calls Agag to come forward, and he picks up the sword, and he hacks Agag to pieces. It's brutal. So how devastating is God's wrath? How ugly is sin in the eyes of God? So much so that a man who was anointed to be the king of God's people is rejected. So much so that old man Samuel brings King Agad for, Agford to hack him to pieces. So much so that God orders the complete devastation and destruction of an entire people. Men, women, and children, everything. Because they sin against a holy God. They were deserving of the devastating wrath of God. And outside of Christ, this is our reality. Outside of Christ, we are spiritually dead. Outside of Christ, what awaits us is God's devastating wrath. And worse, there's nothing that we can do to remedy our situation. On our own, we have no hope. Verse four, but God made us alive together with Christ. Through Christ, we can have life that we cannot obtain on our own. This is good news. Why? Because God has great love for us. God is rich in mercy. His mercy is overwhelmingly abundant, and his love is great for us. So much so that God sent his son to take on the flesh of man, and he defeats sin and death. That Jesus was sent to take on our sin 
on the cross, taking and absorbing the full wrath of God, dying in our place. He died an excruciating death, and he went to the tomb, and it was sealed. Yet he rose victorious, and because he rose victorious, we can have victory over sin. We can have victory over death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have life. This is the gospel. It is good news. As part of of my family's best summer ever experience, um, a few weeks ago we got to to go to the beach, to Crystal Beach, really close to Galveston. And uh, my wife's family joined us there and we had a great time. Every evening, uh, we had a family devotional time together. And on one of those evenings, my father-in-law talked about John 3.16. And he was speaking to my children, telling them to remember John 3.16. Well, most of us in this room could probably quote John 3.16. But I think what happens is sometimes we don't remember what it means. We, we don't see the gospel in how rich it is and what's happened. For us to go from the realm and reality of death to the reality of life, something miraculous has to happen. If you're dead, there's no way that you can respond to God. So something miraculous has to happen for our identity to change from death to life. You know, I'm a kid's pastor, right? And I love meeting with kids and talking to them about the gospel. And I love explaining it this way. I think you'll like it too. I tell them this. Look, a dog barks because it's a dog, right? A cow moves because it's a cow, right? A dog doesn't bark because it's trying to become a dog. A cow does not move because it's trying to become a cow. Right? You're not going to be driving down the road one day and look out into a field and see a bunch of dogs and roll down the window and hear them mooing at each other. Not going to happen. If that happens to you, we got some issues, find me after the service, we can recommend some help, right? Why is this the case? Because they are acting according to their nature. And we are by nature children of wrath. But God makes us alive together with Christ. He is rich in mercy and has great love for us. Man, that gives me excitement. That gives me joy that God would save even me. That he brings us from the realm of death to walk with him in life. And not only does he give us life, but look at verse 6 and verse 7. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to those in Christ Jesus. God raised us. Just as Jesus Christ was physically resurrected, we are brought up from the death and given life. Jesus has a victory and authority over sin and death. And so because that we've been raised up with Christ, we also have authority over sin and death. We get to live in life that he's provided. Sin brings death and wrath, but Christ brings life. 
and exaltation. This is good news. We don't have to be bound to the sin that once entangled us. We don't have to give way to the temptation that wants us to be away from Christ, to turn aside to him. Why? Because we have life and God has provided that life in Jesus Christ. And you see that it says that we have been setted, we've been set with him in the heavenly places. And I think that is incredible. That God took what was dead and not only gave it life, but God took what was dead and exalted it. In chapter 1, you see that Christ has, has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. We know that after he was resurrected, he spent 40 days teaching and spending time with his disciples. And after those 40 days, he ascended into heaven to be with the Father. Jesus has a special relationship with the Father. He has authority. He shares authority with the Father in that glory. Now listen, if we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, we also have access to that authority. It's not that we share that same unique relationship with the Father, but what it does mean and what the Ephesians needed to know is that they could have access to all that God is and all the authority that he possesses and all the power that he possesses and all the victory that is to be found in him. And so when they faced a world that was bent against God, when they faced the spiritual forces at work in their city, when they watched people worship false gods, they didn't have to be intimidated. They didn't have to be discouraged. Why? Because not only did God save them and give them life, God gave them a place of exaltation. He gave them access to him. And so they could defeat anything that would stand in their way because they sat with Christ who is on the throne. This is good news for you. This is good news for me. I like to think about it like this. Look, I hate or used to hate roller coasters, okay? When I was in elementary, I went to Six Flags twice. And both times when I was a kid, I did not want to go. But I had to go because my whole family was going. And when we showed up, there were all these rides that looked scary and intimidating. I thought, look, I'm not riding on anything that goes upside down, and I'm not riding on anything that has a lot of twist. It's not happening. And I didn't. So they had family that would go ride those rides, and I would sit back and watch. And then they would get done, and then we would go do something else. Now, when I was in eighth grade, I was in student council. And at the end of the year, our seventh through twelfth grade student council groups would go to Six Flags. So wake up on a Friday morning, I get on the bus and start making our way from Haskell, Texas to Arlington. And the whole way I'm trying to hype myself up. There's older classmates around, there's girls around, I can't look like a coward. And so I'm trying to hype myself up on the way and this is several hours away. And on the way my friends are talking about, hey, Six Flags has this new ride and it's called the Titan and it's awesome. And they were saying things like, there's a 255-foot drop on the Titan. And I'm thinking, no, not happening today. Can't do it. But I can't be a coward, right? And so they're saying things like, the Titan goes over 80 miles per hour. And I'm thinking, nope, this guy's not going over 80 miles per hour today. Not happening. The Titan has a corkscrew, and the corkscrew goes so fast that people pass out. So much so that they had to slow it down. Oh, this is great, guys. Thanks a lot. 
And so we get there, they give us our tickets, we go to the gate, we give our tickets over, we get our hands stamped, and immediately all my friends are like, hey, we're going to the Titan, let's go to the Titan. All right, I guess this is it. Here's my death wish. And so we get there, and somehow I reluctantly get on the cart. And I remember closing my eyes and gripping onto the seat in front of me as tight as I could. And you know it goes around a little curve real slow. And then it starts inching towards the top, by far the scariest part of the roller coaster. And it's clicking, click, 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 click. And you have a lot of time to think. (laughs) And so I'm sitting there, and I'm praying. I'm thinking about my life. I'm crying. I look up, we're halfway there, I'm crying some more. I'm praying some more, why did I do this? And then we get to the top of that 255 foot drop and we begin to go fast. And I begin to scream like a little girl. (laughs) And at the end of it all, we finally get to the end. I step on to the platform, legs shaking. And I think to myself, that was awesome. (laughs) That that was incredible. I want to do it again. In fact, let's go experience all this park has to offer because I'm having a good time. Right? So when I go to Six Flags, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to get my ticket and go to the gate and get my hand stamped and then, then look at the fountain and go have a seat by the fountain and spend 12 hours there for the rest of the day. No, I have my ticket so that I can enjoy all that the park has to offer. And I'm going to do my best in that 12 hours to experience that park to the fullest. Now I think about our salvation. A lot of times when we think about being saved, a lot of times we think of it as a ticket to an entrance. And we understand that we were lost and that in Christ we were found. But friends, we have so much more than just being found. Our salvation is a ticket and an entrance into who he is. Not that we would sit on the other side of the entrance and be satisfied, no. But that we would experience all that God has to offer, all of his promises, all of those things that he says that he would do for his people. All of his goodness, all of the redemption, all of the following, he is that good. At music camp this past week, I was speaking with one of the kids, and he said to me, Mr. LJ, I'm worried that in in heaven I'm going to get bored. I thought, that's a really interesting thing to think about. And and he said, you know, we're going to be there forever. Like, there's no end to it. I'm like, yeah, that's that's kind of the point. And he said, so every day, right, every day we're going to be doing the same thing over and over and over again. Like, you're right. But check this out. Paul tells us that the riches of God's grace are immeasurable. They're immeasurable. That means it would take an eternity to fully experience the extent of God's grace, of the riches that we have in him. And guess what? If we're in Christ, we're going to get to experience him for an eternity. 
And there's going to be no end, no limit to his goodness, to the riches of his grace. And he is going to be found anew every single moment of eternity. This is great news. And guess what? We didn't have to pay for it. He did it on our behalf. By grace, these things have been given to us. And even better, we don't have to wait until death to experience who he is. We get to experience who he is now. We have access to his promises today. We have access to his power, to his victory today. So although I'm lost in Christ, I'm found. Although sometimes I'm confused and don't know what to do, the Spirit is guidance in my life. When I can't hear, when I'm confused by what's going on around me, His Spirit speaks to me. When I'm hungry, He is my portion. When I'm thirsty, He gives me a drink of everlasting life. When my feet don't know which way to go, God is with me. When I'm scared, He gives me comfort and courage to live for Him. When I find myself wandering away from who he is, he calls me back to himself because he's good, he's full of mercy, he uses his church to push me on. We have access to who he is now. Today, your salvation is not just about your ticket into heaven. Your salvation is about experiencing him every single moment of your life. Don't miss it. And so if there was any application for what we're talking about this morning, it's to know God's love in such a way that it changes the way that you live. That if we would see how good God is, that if we would see how full of love and how full of mercy he has towards us, we cannot help but live differently. Now, this is not about us. It's not so that we get to come to church and clap our hands and and raise our hands and be thankful that we are his people. That may happen. But these things have happened so that for the ages, God might demonstrate the immeasurable riches of his grace. We are trophies of his grace. The Ephesians needed to know that, that God gave them value. While they were once dead, God has set them in a place of exaltation so that God can demonstrate who he is to everyone around them. You know what I love about our church family? There's people in our church that have dealt with addiction. There's people in our church that are dealing with, with sexual sin. There's, there's people in our church that are cowards, that are liars, they're thieves. They're no good, but guess what? God so loved us that he gives us life and he does it together. He makes us into one body to be his trophy so that in the ages to come, all would give praise and honor due his name. And so when we come here, we're, we're not raising our hands to say how great we are. We're raising our hands to thank God for who he is, that he gives us life. And this happens as a church family so that when I'm struggling, when I'm turning aside, when, when I'm not looking at God and beholding who he is, I might be encouraged by somebody setting two or three rows behind me as they cry out to the Lord, proclaiming that God is good. I might hear that and be reminded 
And so then it would encourage me to turn and follow God all the more. So check this out. The way that this plays out is that that we come to this place and worship God. And then we go out into our communities to be the individual trophies. As individuals living in in our homes, in our communities, working in our workplaces, in our families, the, neighbor, the neighborhoods that we live in. You know, in, in wrapping up summer activities, I, I've always prayed and been, been praying to the Lord about what we should do through kids' ministry. I've been praying about VBS. Should we bring VBS back to FBG? God has not given the green light on that. But in praying through those things, the idea came to mind, what if next summer, a hundred families decided, you know what, we're going to have a mini VBS in our backyard and we're going to invite our entire neighborhood. You know what happens? We have the largest VBS ever done in Georgetown. But more than that, we get to be a demonstration of who he is throughout our community. This is how this plays out. So know God and what he's done in such a way that it changes how you live. And then you go and live that out when you leave this place. And when you live that out, you are a trophy of God's grace. And those that are around you see what is going on. They, they hear your words. They see how joyful you are so that they may in turn look to Christ. Now, our church has a few uh, intentional initiatives to help this happen one of which is Love Georgetown. If you have not signed up for, George, for Love Georgetown, let me encourage you that for us to be a display of God's grace, of the immeasurable riches of his mercy, we have a great opportunity to do this as a church family if we would participate in Love Georgetown. So check out the website and get signed up. But daily, Wake up and remind yourself of all that he has done on our behalf to give us life. And if we will do just that, then perhaps God would make us his trophy. The church has always been a second home for me. And in time, it became my first home. I met my wife through the church. I was discipled through the church. And I became the man I am today because people in the church reached out to me and loved on me to make me love God, to encourage me to love God. And so I hope this morning that you have been encouraged to do the same. And we can be the best family ever because we have the greatest ever.